So um, we talk around here a lot about the gospel. We say that word all the time. We talk about the gospel. We, we call ourselves a gospel-centered church. And what that means is that we, we want to see the gospel take root in our lives so that we can see a gospel-centered culture flourish in our church. Um, and so we, we talk about the gospel all the time, but we need to make sure that we understand what the gospel is. And thankfully, the Bible tells us what it is over and over again. Um, but this is another passage that we're going to see the gospel. Um, and, and we're going to see it in these two chapters. And I'm preaching, we're, we're taking both of these chapters together because I think together they give us the full picture. They don't, if we just took one and then waited till next week for the other, we'd leave here really, really bummed out. And, and then have to come back next week and hope that some of you come back after being so depressed after chapter 34. So we got to do this together. We got to see both God's, um, the, the truth of, of God's uh, judgment on sin, which is what chapter 34 is about, which is not a pleasant conversation, but that has to also be paired with the good news of the gospel that, that, that we're going to talk about. So let me just quickly on the front end of this explain what I mean by the gospel. Um, and, and that way we can be on the same page. Basically, the gospel comes from a Greek word. It's the Greek word's euangelion. That doesn't really matter too much for this conversation. But from that Greek word, we get the English word gospel. But the, the word from in Greek means good news. That's, that's the meaning of the word that we call the gospel. It's good news. And so the gospel is simply the good news that God entered into our world in the person, as the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is fully God and he became fully man. And as he lived on earth, he lived a perfect sinless life. He never erred. He never made a mistake. He never was flawed. He was perfect and sinless because of his divine nature. And, And as he lived his life, he ultimately goes to the cross and is crucified as a criminal would have been killed in that culture. Though he had done nothing wrong, he died a sinner's death. And he died in the place of sinners. He died for sinners. He died to take the sins off of sinners and place them upon himself. And then he rose from the dead after his crucifixion on the third day. And and this story of of God becoming one of us, living that perfect life, dying in the place of sinners and rising again from the dead is the good news of the gospel. But but here's what I want to contend, and I think that this is this is just universally true. I think I don't think I'm saying anything radical here, but I don't think that we can really embrace and love the gospel if we don't understand our desperate need if we didn't have it. What, what would be our fate if we didn't have Jesus in our lives? It's when we understand that hard truth, that really painful truth, that we are actually sinners and deserve the wrath and judgment of God. That has to be understood if we're going to truly appreciate and love the gospel. And so I'm going to just say this up front as we get into chapter 34. You're going to hate this chapter. So do I, by the way. We all, we all should. <laughs> It's horrible. It's horrible. But it's giving us the bad news before it leads into the good news. 
the wonderful thing about this is that it doesn't just stop at chapter 34 and then that's the end of the story and we're all doomed. No, chapter 35 comes and, and it's, so keep your eye on that. Make sure you're, you're, as we work through chapter 34, make sure you're realizing this isn't the ultimate pinnacle of this message. It's going to get to chapter 35 and you're going to hate what chapter 34 says. I hate it too um, because it's, it's so unflattering to us. Like we don't want to be we don't want to be put down, right? And we don't want to be under God's judgment. Who does, right? That's not what we want to be. But that's not our ultimate destiny if we trust in Jesus. We got to keep that in mind. That's why the gospel is such good news. So chapter 34 is not a happy message in and of itself. It is a true message. It is a true message. We need to hear it. But chapter 35 is where we begin to really get into what's, what is to come for those who embrace the good news of the gospel. And so before we get there, we have to be confronted with the reality of our sin so that we can see the, the beauty of God's grace. That's where we're going to go. Now, I, I, there's a guy who's he's passed away now. He was a pastor and theologian named Francis Schaeffer. And he used to say that if he had an hour to talk to somebody about the gospel, he would spend the first 50 minutes talking about God's judgment and then the last 10 minutes talking about grace. And his, his reasoning for that was because if we don't really get what our condition is before we receive Christ, we're not going to appreciate it as we should. We're not going to cling to it as our only life raft in, in the storm of life. And so uh, while I may not follow, emulate that, one, this isn't going to be an hour-long sermon, so you can breathe easy. Two, uh, I'm not going to spend 50 minutes on that part. We, we will balance this, but, but I do think that that's a valid uh, point that he makes. So, uh, but let's get into this. Chapter 34, there's really four main uh, things that God is saying to, to us in this, in this passage. We'll go through them quickly. Um, we'll do justice to it, but we'll, we, we'll go through it quickly, and then we'll get into chapter 35. So let's start with chapter, uh, verse 1 of 34. It says, Draw near, O nations, to hear. Give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it. Let the world and all that comes from it. So here is the, the audience that God is going to speak to. And who is he talking to? The world. The whole world. Now, this is interesting because uh, this is coming right on the heels of a long discussion in Isaiah with Israel and Assyria. The Assyrian nation was kind of the focus of so many of these chapters. Uh, now it's not Assyria particularly, but the whole world that God turns his attention to. And he's basically calling the whole world to himself and saying, listen, I've got something to tell you here. You need to listen to this. You need to hear it. And so he's summoning the world to listen. This, basically what's happening here is it's, it's showing us that God's, um, God's anger and fury at sin is not a local problem with one nation or one group of people, but it's that the whole world has fallen into sin. The whole world. And he's going to call, call it all out. So verse 2, uh, 2 through 4 is the second thing that we're going to look at. Um, it says, for the Lord is enraged against all the nations. Notice those languages, right? Enraged, he's angry, he's furious at all the nations. 
All. Every one of them. And then it says he's furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out. The stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All the hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Now that's a pretty picture, isn't it? This is showing something about God's nature and character that we need to hear. We don't like it, but, but it's true. That God actually hates sin. He hates it. And he's rightly angry because of it. He's, he's actually... See, I don't know that we, we ne- don't necessarily look at our own sin with this kind of anger, right? Because we're, we're so comfortable with it. We're so, you know, we just, we don't, we don't hate it as much as God hates it. But here's the thing. We need to recognize that God's anger at sin is a, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Because every one of us, when we're sinned against, when somebody does something to us, we want justice, when we're the ones that do something to someone else, we want grace, right? We're either, you're really either a good judge when someone sins against you or a really good lawyer when you sin against someone else. That's how it works. But see, God is the ultimate one that has been sinned against. What, what we have done in our sin, in our rebellion, in our, in our disobedience to his law, his ways, his, his plan— is, is that we have taken the, the king of the universe and we have committed treason against him. That's what sin is. Uh, R.C. Sproul, uh, who is also now with the Lord, uh, wrote that sin is cosmic treason. You're taking the God of the universe and you're spitting in his face. And so God is rightly angry. But he's not just angry at one particular person or one particular nation. He's, it's the whole world that's guilty of this. Everyone is under this wrath. Everyone has this, uh, this guilt on them. And that's, a, that's not a good thing, right? We're not happy in that. That's, but that's the reality of where we, we were if we, or, or where we are if we don't have Jesus. That's still where we are. We're under the wrath of God. And he says he's going to bring about um, this, this wrath. He's going to bring about this destruction. He's going to do this, and it's going to be awful. It's going to be awful. So let's, let's, keep, but let's keep reading here. Um, verse, the biggest chunk of this we're going to look at is 5 through 15. Um, here's what it says. We, we may not focus on every line in this, but we'll, get the, we'll hit the highlight. It says, for my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. Now, this is interesting because he's called, he's basically calling out the whole world initially. And then he pulls out this one name, this one nation called this nation of Edom. Why is he singling them out all of a sudden? Um, well, here's what we need to realize. Edom is a representation of all of God's enemies. It's not specifically Edom as that little nation. It's, it's that they represent hostility towards God, which all nations and all people are guilty of. But he's using them as a representation. So if you don't know the history here, uh, Edom was founded 
by this guy named Esau. Esau is the brother, the twin brother of Jacob. And Jacob was the one that God chose to carry his promise, his Abrahamic promise through his line, right? So you have Abraham and then his son, Isaac. Isaac has Jacob and Esau uh, as his sons. And God said, okay, Jacob, you're the one that's gonna carry on my promise uh, and your line is gonna bring the Messiah. Your line is gonna carry on what has been promised to Abraham. And Esau was not chosen for that. Now, you might say, well, that's not fair. The Bible actually does address that question, and uh, it addresses it in a very a semi-unsatisfying way. And basically, the answer is God does what he wants. Deal with it. That's really hard, but that's, that's what it says. Because that whole question is, why Esau? Why not Esau? Why Jacob? Because. Does that satisfy you? I don't know. Probably not. But that's the answer we're given, so we got to deal with it. But so... Esau goes on, uh, has a lot of kids, a lot of grandkids, a lot of great-grandkids, etc., etc. And now this nation of Edom is formed from his line. Now, Edom and Israel have a, a confrontation um, around the time of Israel entering into the promised land. And, and basically what Israel requested of Edom was safe passage through their, their territory so that they could get to the promised land. And you would think that the answer would be, sure, you know, we're brothers. Right? Our founders were, were brothers. Like, yeah, go ahead. Edom doesn't do that. Edom just completely rejects Israel's request, does, shuts them out, refuses to let them in. So there's the historical kind of thing there, uh, very, very, very briefly. But that's why God is using Edom here as an, as an illustration or representation of, of the world and the hostile world. So that's what he's saying, in case you're curious. Verse 6 says, The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of kidneys and ram, of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there's no one there to call it a kingdom, and all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode of ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there, are, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lie, lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Now, there's a lot of animals in there. It's not like Noah's Ark or anything. But what we're talking about here is that God is saying that given, um, unless there's a mediator who comes into this picture and takes care of this judgment, 
all of the world would just have been laid waste just destroyed. And, and, and there's not, not going to be anything left but these animals that are just, you know, they're carrions, right? They're eating dead things. That's, that's the majority of the animals that are mentioned in this passage. The idea is that God's wrath um, it would, would lead ultimately to, to everybody's death and destruction. And so that's the picture. It's not a pretty picture. It, it's showing this reality that God does take sin seriously. Now we're going to get to how this all connects to us in a minute, but first we've got to look at the last couple verses. It says, verse 16 and 17, Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them. With the line, they shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. What he's saying here is this, that God's book is written and everything's going to come to fulfillment. What God says he's going to do. So that ends in a really scary place for people, right? Because what God has just said is he's going to just destroy everybody because of their sin. That's what he says. And so God is saying, listen, you pay attention to this. It's all, it's all going to happen. But, but this is not the end of the story. I want you to hear that. If we read this and only this, we pulled out chapter 34 from all of the rest of the scripture and we just read that, we would walk away convinced that we are doomed with no hope. But that's not the story. In fact, chapter 35 comes right after this. And, and in the original writing of Isaiah, there were no chapters and verses. There was just a continuation of writing. So there, there were no divisions. Like we added the chapters and verses, not like we as in this room, but somebody added these things um, probably about 500 years ago, roughly around the Reformation, because they realized, hey, people are reading their Bible. That should be helpful to have something that points people to, to common verses. That's good. That's fine. I'm not against it. But this is not how the flow works. It's not like there's a hard stop at the end of chapter 34. It's continuing into chapter 35. And, and we're, what we're going to see as we read this is that, yes, there's judgment for sin, but there's also grace for those who will turn to the Lord. And that's where we go from here. So let's, let's look at this. It says, The wilderness and the dry land Right? So now all this stuff that God's talking about, it's, he's talking about taking out all the people. Now it's just going to be wilderness. It's going to be dry land. It's going to be worthless. What's the hope in this? The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. That's a type of plant. I had to look that one up. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold your God. He will come with vengeance. He will... With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. That is beautiful. 
So here's the thing. We're reading all of this about how God's justice and judgment and wrath on sin and sinners. We're reading that in our, and what's the, what's the response of our heart as we read through that? It is weak hands, feeble knees, anxious hearts. That's what, we, that's what, that's what the law produces in us. That's what sin creates in us because we know we can't stand before the fury of the Lord. And so what's our only hope in this? Behold your God. He will come with a vengeance. Yes, he will recompense, but he will come and save you. So what's the linchpin in this? What is the connector between these things? It's that God himself will come and will bear his own wrath and judgment. That's that's the hope of the gospel. See, what makes the death of Christ so sweet to us is that what we deserve is wrath from God, but what Jesus received was that wrath so that we wouldn't have to. We have this amazing God who will come and save us in himself, becoming one of his own fallen people. He did not have any sin in himself, but he took on the form of sinners and he died in our place. He, he became one of us so that we can say, we can strengthen our hands, we can, we can um, what is it, make firm our feeble knees and we can speak to our anxious hearts, be strong, fear not. The reason we can stand before the face of God with no fear is because Jesus stands in our place. Jesus takes all of God's divine wrath upon himself so that we can stand before God in absolute um, perfection and righteousness and, and, and can be with him forever. That's, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. And you know, that happens because Jesus came into the world. When we get into the, we'll, we'll read the rest of chapter 35 here and we'll talk about it. But before we do that, I just want to take us through how this happens. How does this, this change take place? And Jesus himself explains it to us. If you go quickly over to John chapter 3, there's a passage here that we want to look at for just a few minutes. Because I think by, by seeing what Jesus has to say to us in this, uh, we will... We'll kind of have that like, oh, the light bulb's coming on, kind of aha moment on how these things can be. How can God in one, in one chapter say, everybody's going to die and you're all destroyed and, and the world's going to be laid waste to now everybody's actually going to have hope if, if they turn to the Lord because he can save them. It happens because of Jesus. And so in John 3, we meet this guy that Jesus is talking to, this guy named Nicodemus. And we're not going to look at Nicodemus' life in particular, but that's the context. And Nicodemus is talking to Jesus and asking him, how in the world can somebody be fundamentally reborn or changed? Jesus is telling him, like, the only way that we can actually see this happen is through a change of our very nature, from being taken from dead sinners to being alive in Christ. And, and Nicodemus doesn't understand, as, as many of us wouldn't have understood, how these things can be. And so if we look down, we'll start in verse 
uh, 13. We'll, we'll just kind of skip through a lot of important stuff, but we'll, we'll get to the heart of it. Verse 13 says this. Jesus is speaking here. He says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Son of Man was one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. He's talking about himself. And what he's saying is, is that nobody has been to heaven and come back. Only Jesus has been to heaven and now is on earth. He's, he's actually in this uh, kind of in a veiled way is sh- stating that he's actually God, that he's God. Right? Nobody else could say, yeah, I've been, I've been there and now I'm back and I'm here to tell you. Jesus, Jesus is God who now is on the earth. And then look at what verse 14 and 15 have to say. It says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus uh, is speaking to a man who would have known the law, the Old Testament, very, very well. And so this wasn't like an uncommon story for him, but it might be a little uncommon for you. Um, so I'll just explain what he's referring to. Moses, it says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. What is that? Well, that's a story from, I think, the book of Numbers, if I'm not mistaken. I could be mistaken, but it's in there somewhere. Uh, and he, basically what's happening is that God's, God's judgment is coming on the people of Israel. Pe- the people of Israel are being rebellious. They're being disobedient. They're being grumblers. And so God brings judgment to, that, to those people. And he does so in the form of sending poisonous snakes into the camp, which I know sounds pretty, pretty heartless, but you know, it's, it's all meant to draw them back to repentance. There's, there's some severe things that God has to do to get these rebellious people to himself. And, and one of those things was he sent all these poisonous snakes into the camp and they started biting everybody. So obviously there's no hospitals. There's nowhere for them to go to get antivenom. They're just, they're, they're sunk. And what God says to Moses is this. If you put this bronze serpent up on a pole, whoever looks at that snake will be healed. It's a crazy story. It's a crazy story. But everybody who looked at that snake, as it was this fake snake, this bronze snake up in the air, they were instantly healed. And what is Jesus saying about this story? What he's saying is that that story actually points us to to him to the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That's a big word. What it means is that Jesus died to pay for sin in the place of sinners, right? He substituted himself for sinners and atonement is a way to pay for sin. So Jesus is actually saying that this story of Moses and the snake in the wilderness is a, is a way of getting our minds to the ultimate fulfillment of this, which is Jesus' substitutionary atonement, that Jesus will be lifted up on a cross, that whoever looks to him will be saved. That whoever looks to him will be saved. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Then look at, let's keep reading. Verse 16, for God so loved the world. You might not get the impression that he loves the world from chapter 34. But he does. He loves the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son, of the only Son of God. Jesus is not refusing to talk about judgment here or condemnation. He admits it. He says, look, there's condemnation and there's judgment. And and if you keep reading, he'll talk a little bit more in verse 19 about judgment. Um, For the sake of time, we'll, we'll stop here. But what he, he's not saying that God doesn't condemn, but what he is saying is that there is a remedy for that condemnation. And that remedy is God himself becoming Christ who would be in the place of sinners, would take the condemnation off of sinners and onto himself. That's what the, the, the linchpin is between 34 and 35. It is Jesus taking the place of these sinners. It's not that chapter 34 is untrue. It, it is true. But here's the thing. If you're in Christ today, everything that he says he will do to you, he's done to Christ already. He's done to Christ. He's done to Jesus all the things he said he would do to us. That's a really good news. That's why we call it the gospel. Because all these things that are true of God, because God has to be just. He has to take care of of, of sin. He wouldn't be good if he didn't do this. But here's the problem. If we're the objects of that wrath, it's not good for us. So Jesus became the object of that wrath. So that we can say to our anxious hearts, to our weak hands, to our feeble knees, be strong. Behold your God. He comes to save you. Then as we get through the rest of this, turn back to 35 here, and we're going to just walk through the next you know, handful of verses here. Um, we see in verse 1 through 4 that Jesus saves us from God's wrath. Right, we've looked at that. We've seen how that connects to what he has to say of himself in John. Look at 5 through 7. It says, the, then, so then after God saves you, This is what happens next. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool. The thirsty ground springs of water In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. The Bible is saying to us here that because Jesus has taken the wrath of God away from us, he's making us into new people. He's, He's fundamentally changing our very nature from dead and unsaved hearts to living and breathing spiritually alive people. You can read more about that in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. That's, what, that's Paul's whole thing there. We don't have time to look at it. But, but that's, that's a huge thing. It's called, again, the, doc, the, the fancy theological word for this is regeneration, that Jesus actually brings your dead, sinful heart to life. And, and as he comes to save you, that's the result. He actually changes us and brings us into what Jesus would say is being born again. 
the way that Isaiah describes it is, is taking these, these very fundamental senses that were once closed and unworking and God makes them work, right? The eyes of the blind will be open. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The, the man who is lame, meaning can't walk, leaps like a deer. The tongue of somebody who can't speak can now sing for joy. We are fundamentally transformed people when Jesus Christ takes our place and we trust in him. We are fundamentally changed. We are, we, our whole position is changed from being dead to God to being alive in him. That's good news. One more, 8 through 10. Look at this. The highway, shall, a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. What, what Isaiah is telling us today is that in Jesus, we are saved from wrath. In Jesus, we are changed people. And here we see that in Jesus, we are secure and safe forever. See, what Jesus does in us can't be taken away from us. Notice what he says. There's a highway. There's this road that, that, the, that the redeemed are walking on. There's a whole analogy of this highway. But notice how this highway is described. Nothing unclean will pass over it. Even if the people who are on it are fools, and we are fools, we're not going to get lost. <laughs> we're not going to go astray. Because why? Because Jesus is leading us down this road. We're following our good shepherd down this road. Even in our foolishness, we won't be lost. We won't go astray. And then he says, then he lays out these animals. Isaiah is all about animals. It's kind of interesting. He talks a lot about them. No lion, no ravenous beast. Nothing that can harm you will be on that road. Nothing that can ultimately harm you, right? Nothing, God is going to secure us and protect us forever as we rest in Jesus. And the ultimate outcome of God's saving work for you and me is that we will go to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy upon our heads, this gladness and joy that has replaced all of our sorrow and sighing. This is, this is the outcome for those who trust in Jesus. The, our ultimate security with Christ forever. We get to be saved from wrath. We get to be changed people from the inside out and we get to be safe and secure in him forever. That is good news. That's why we're all about the gospel. The gospel is not just the entrance into Christianity or into, the, into faith. It is the whole road that we walk. This whole journey from beginning to end is the gospel, the good news of Christ that has redeemed us and saved us and will ultimately deliver us safely into Christ's arms. And we get to celebrate in that and rejoice in that this morning. 
So I, my hope for you today is this, that if you're, if you're someone here who has trusted Christ, has given your sins to him, has turned that over to him through faith and belief in him, you, you need to recognize that the whole thing, the whole journey that you're on, he's going to secure in you. He's going to protect you. you, you so, so many of you, I know I've met with a number of you over the years, and seems like this thing that just keeps coming up is, I, I, don't, I, I keep struggling with things, and so I don't know if I'm saved. Listen, if you've trusted Jesus, you are saved. You are secure. There, there needs to be some recognition that if God has saved you, then nothing can unsave you, right? Because it's not based on you. It's not based off your works. How can, how can you be unsaved because of your works? But, but there are some important things to notice. If you're struggling with sin, there are things that you may need to, to, to hand over to the Lord and give to him and say, Lord, I'm surrendering this sin to you. Take it from me, right? Those are, those are tangible things. But the heart of the gospel is that you are safe and secure in him. The wrath of God will not be on you. But here's the thing. There, are, there may be some of you in this room where that's not the case. Where, where chapter 34 still applies to you. And I hope that's not the case. But if it is, here's the thing. You do what Jesus says. You look to Christ you look to him, and whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Will you give your heart and surrender your sins to Jesus today? Will you do that? Some of you may need to do that. All of us need the gospel. doesn't matter how long we've been in this thing. We all need it. But some of you might need it for salvation today, and some of you may need it for security today, in which case Jesus can meet you wherever you are. Just call out to him, ask him for his help, and he will offer you his help. So let me pray for us, and then we'll sing some songs in conclusion and partake of the Lord's table together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great grace to us. Lord, we know that there is nothing in us that deserves your grace. There's nothing in us that has earned it, and, and yet you offer it freely to us in Jesus. Would you help us, Lord, to rest in security of that? Would you help us, Lord, if there's anyone in this room today who has not believed in that message, trusted in it, would you draw their hearts to you this morning? Would you help those who are struggling in their, in their sins to, to hand over those sins to you? Lord, you, you know how to meet us. You know what needs to be done. I don't, I don't know I don't know what every single person in this room is going through in this moment, but you do. Perfectly you do. And so we pray you would meet us by your spirit in our time of need, and we trust you for that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.